This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Freeman Dyson. He's a theoretical physicist and professor emeritus at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. I spoke with him on November 3, 2005, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of WBUR in Boston, Massachusetts. This interview is included in our show, Einstein's God. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. I believe that you didn't know Einstein personally, is that right? Right. But but I'm very intrigued. I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks reading him and reading you. <laughs> and there are a lot of parallels um, between the paths you took and the things that interested you and that you worked in. And, um, and you know, I, I want to trace that because I, I think that um, f- from what I read... Um, Understanding how you think may also give us, give sort of, we give 21st century lay people who just want to grasp some of this, some sense of how Einstein thought and saw the world and, or, and how his ideas affected the world and affected lives like yours. So that's where I'd like to go with it. Right now, the engineers are on the phone, and as soon as they're done, we can, we can start talking. Do you have any questions of me before we begin? Well, first of all, what sort of an audience are you aiming this at? Well, we have an audience of about half a million people across the country, um, and it's a public radio. It's it's a the mainstream public radio audience. Sorry, Mitch, I'm <coughs> getting in. Is the echo okay? Yeah, I'm not hearing an echo anymore. Are you hearing an echo still? Well, let's try. No, right. I'm not. All right. Um, this our program is on all over the country um, every week. It begins um, Saturday morning at seven o'clock on the on WNYC FM. It, it's on two other times on the weekend in New York City. It's on all over the country. I think the last time the each week's program airs is seven o'clock on Wednesday evening in Atlanta. So it's it's not it's it's a your basic public radio audience and Good. Uh, yeah. So we're we. The, the title of the show, I think, uh, is problematic, because, but all of the words around this subject of religion, faith, spirituality are problematic and loaded. So we are trying with this program, which is just two years old, to fill that phrase, speaking of faith, with some connotations and with the generosity and breadth and also intellectual content that it has in many, many lives and many disciplines. So that's our challenge. Good. My engineer needs to hear you, but... Um, yes, well, uh, here I am. I don't know what he wants me to do. <laughs> All right. Tell me what you had for breakfast, something mundane. Yes, well, it was. Uh, it's hard to remember. It's so long ago. Since then, I talked to 150 high school kids and <coughs> so I had such a great time. I've forgotten all about breakfast. <laughs> what were you talking to the high school kids about? Oh, problems of life. <laughs> it was great. They have a local high school here, which is called the Academy, which which is attached to Boston University, mm-hmm. and they are really amazingly bright kids. So, and it's quite a small school. I had the entire school in one room, and, and so it was fun. Hmm. And talked about well, it was supposed to be about the future, which meant fifty years from now when they when they'll be growing old. Right. All right. I think we've got the thumbs up. We can start going. Um, Good. I'd like to let's see. Uh, Einstein was born in 1879. You were born in 1924. Is that right? 
23. To 23. All right. I've seen that. I've wondered because I've seen different dates. Um, now, it, it's in your autobiography, in your, your most autobiographical work, Disturbing the Universe, you, you talk about, you describe how you became interested in mathematics at a very early age. And it's also clear that you knew about Albert Einstein and you knew about his theory of relativity. And I, I just want to know, you know, how did you know about that? Was this something that people talked about in the culture or in your family? Well, of course, I don't remember uh, from, from that long ago what order things happened. Certainly, I learned about him from books. Mm-hmm. There were, was my, my father read the, 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 the fashionable popular science of the day, Eddington and Jeans and, and, and Whitehead. So books by Eddington and Jeans and Whitehead were on the shelves, and certainly, I, 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 I think most likely I learned it from Eddington. I mean, Eddington wrote a wonderful book called Space, Time, and Gravitation, which is, of course, all about Einstein. And that was one of my father's books. So mm-hmm. I probably got it there. You you write about getting yourself a copy of a book about differential equations, and you say because that was that yes, that yes. was later that was later. Or but you said because I knew it was Einstein's language, and I had to learn it. And I guess you know what I'm trying to understand is. What, <clears throat> how did, what did you mean by that at that, in your youth when you had that longing? What, what did that, what did that, what did that signify for you, Einstein's language and what it would open up for you? Well, I'd read this book by Eddington and, and other books of that kind, which were popular books, which were describing relativity in words with, without mathematics. And so and I, I, I realized that what I could learn from Eddington was o- only a shadow of the real thing. I and, see. And mm-hmm. So you needed mathematics really to understand what it was all about. Mm-hmm. So I think that something people don't have a sense of in our time is how Einstein's um, theory of relativity changed the way people thought fundamentally about time and space and therefore about the world and about life. <clears throat> I mean... Well, in, I would... Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I, 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 I would make a big distinction between thinking about the world and thinking about life. They really aren't the same. Okay. I mean, relativity makes a big difference to thinking about space and time and about the, the, the universe. It makes no difference at all to thinking about life. So you, you would distinguish between thinking about the universe and thinking about a kind of daily life and the world around yes. us. All right. Yes. I mean, as far as daily life is concerned, relativity makes no difference at all. And I think that's important. Okay. If you had to describe, this is very, and if you want to just not do this, I will also understand. But if, if I asked you to state in sort of layman's terms, you know, what it was um, that Einstein showed, revealed, that, that really changed um, science, you know, how, how would you define that simply? Is that possible? Yes, I think it's not so hard. I okay. mean, because all, it's, it's all, of course, grossly oversimplified. Right. But so what he did was to, just to, to say everything is geometry. Geometry is just what shape things are. It's, 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 it's a part of mathematics which describes the relationships between shapes and sizes and and distances. And so he 
he wasn't actually the first to say this, but still, it was he was the first to prove it was right, that you can understand a great deal of what goes on in the world. You can understand gravitation. You can understand why the apple falls from the tree and why the moon goes around the earth and the earth around the sun by looking at this a problem in geometry, that the, it's, it's the reason why things fall or, go or stay in orbit, as the case may be, is because the space-time is curved instead of being in a f on a flat sheet of paper where on the outside of a ball or something of that kind, where this is, so there is a, a curvature in space and time. And, and that determines how things move. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the existence of solid objects with mass produces the curvature of the space. That's what science, in Einstein's view, is all about. So, so that the relation between matter and space, which the, the, the matter curves the space and the, and the space then pushes on the matter. And what idea, what, what basic sense of, of how things work did he overturn in asserting that? Or did he, did he advance? Well, he, he overturned a whole lot of things, but particularly it was a, an idea of something called the ether, which was very much believed in for a hundred years before. Right. And the ether was supposed to be a all-pervading, rigid, solid medium so that the, we were all supposed to be somehow swimming, swimming in this ether like a fish in the ocean. And this ether was then... A it was some sort of mechanical medium which could vibrate and, and carry light waves. So light was just a vibration of the ether. Okay. And so the whole picture of the universe was based on, on this notion of the ether. And uh, Einstein simply said, we don't need that. And I think that was sort of the most radical change that he made. Instead of the ether, he just had a vacuum of this space as we now think of it as being empty. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was full. And I suppose that, that was a very big change. Okay. And it's very clear to me, again, reading your autobiography, that, um, that, that Einstein's legacy and ideas pervaded your early work as a physicist. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's still true. <laughs> Yes, in, in, it, it is true, but on the other, I mean, one should also make it clear that the big revolution in, in, in science that happened, or in physics that happened at the beginning of the 20th century was really a double revolution. It was, on the one hand, Einstein's relativity. On the other hand, quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. Those two things were both... Huge revolutions, but in, in and quantum mechanics, of course, also had a lot to do with Einstein, but he did not invent it. The actual invention of quantum mechanics was done by other people. Right, and in our in, sort of in my lifetime in science, I would say quantum mechanics has had a much larger influence actually than relativity. So that's just to get the facts straight. Right. Um, I, I want to talk about quantum physics, but before we go on, I want, I want to ask you about something I've 
seen that C.P. Snow wrote in 1972 that if Einstein had not, <clears throat> if Einstein had not created the theory of relativity when he did, no one else would have done so. Perhaps not until now. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Perhaps not for generations. Is that is that true? And why would that? Well, be again, true? I mean, life is always more complicated. And, and there were two v- steps in, in Einstein's work on relativity, what mm-hmm. we call the special theory, which was 1905, mm-hmm. which was the, the, Einstein's wonder year when he did so much in one year. And, and special relativity was concerned ju- just with things moving uniformly and was still with a, a space... A sp- space-time was mixed up. Space and time were mixed up in special relativity, but they were still flat. Then 10 years later, in 1915, he discovered general relativity, which explained gravitation and where the space and time became curved. So those two things are really, they both were great discoveries, but they really are quite separate. Do you have a, do you um, concur? May I just finish there? Yes, uh, yes. I mean, what C.P. Snow was talking about, general mm-hmm. relativity. Okay. And I think it's important that, that if Einstein had not invented special relativity, it would have happened within five years. I mean, there were other people who were very, very close, Poincaré and Lorentz okay. in particular. So that would have been certainly discovered and, and more or less in its present form without Einstein. On the other hand, what Snow was talking about was the general theory, and that was so special, so, so, so really Einstein's great work of art, which might never have happened without him. But it was sort of, it was a great work of art as well as being science, hmm. so that it's quite possible it would never have happened in that way if Einstein hadn't found it. How would you describe what it was that what it was that was so special about Einstein that made that great work of art possible? I mean, what, what did he bring that that still is quite unique as you're describing it to me? Well, it, I, I don't know how to describe it except to say that's genius. I mean, the you know, the, the difference b- between a genius and an ordinary person is mm-hmm. that uh, an ordinary person, like, I mean, who, who is also a great scientist, can do things with much that he's much cleverer than we are, but still does things in roughly the same way. A genius does things totally differently, and and that's that's what was characteristic of Einstein. He just was profoundly original, and and but I don't know what more you can say. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's just like asking what was special about Mozart. I mean, it, okay. you, you you can't right. you can't describe it. All you can do is just listen. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk about the questions that that scientists like you inherited from his work, including quantum physics, and um, and what questions were left open that, as you say, have determined the developments in later years in physics. Well, I think what has happened was something that Einstein never accepted, but still, it, it was was happening in the later part of Einstein's life, that there were huge experimental discoveries which had been going on through the 20th century, which were outside his framework. Okay. And this whole of particle physics as it now exists, we have now 
you know, about 25 varieties of fundamental particles. And Einstein was not interested in that. He was only interested in essentially in, in, in three kinds of particles. <laughs> he wanted everything to reduce to what he called a unified theory, which was just a field theory of gravitation and electromagnetism, so that he was sort of blinkered. In, he just wasn't interested in anything that went beyond that. Now, it turns out nature thinks differently. Nature invented, for some reason we don't understand, this huge zoo of other kinds of particles to which Einstein paid no attention. Hmm. That's a strange paradox that uh, although he was so profoundly original, he didn't actually look outside his little box. And, and, and that's, that's the, the tension that arose at the end of his life. And he was so heavily concentrated on a rather narrow picture of the, of the world. And meanwhile, all these new, new things were being discovered. Wasn't that also because he was so intent to the end that it should be possible for him to come up with a, a grand unified theory that, that still explained all of those discoveries? Yes, that that's certainly true. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he said uh, it was quite natural after once having had such an amazing triumph to think, well, uh, mm-hmm. maybe I can do it again. That was clearly his dream. And it was very sad that it didn't work out. Right. But it was, I mean, to us who were young at the time, it was sort of obvious that he was on the wrong track because it was just inconceivable that his style of thinking would really encompass all these other beautiful things that were being found. Hmm. What do you, I wonder if you could elaborate on that, you know, what you mean when you talk about these other beautiful things that are being found. Well, when I was a young fellow in Princeton, when I first came to America, it was sort of a, a golden age of particle physics. There were about 10 new kinds of particles which had already been found and more coming in. I mean, sort of every year a new one. And that was the most exciting stuff. And I mean, we were all, the young people, were all concentrating on that. And here was this old Einstein just not even bothering to come to the talks. Hmm. You know, he was just not interested and that was it. And, well, it it was profoundly saddening for me uh, to see that. Okay. It was in the context of his reaction to quantum physics and some of the things he didn't agree with or um, that he made this remark. I've, I've seen several versions of this, so it seems like he said this to different people in different ways, but it's often quoted as, God does not play dice. I don't believe yes. that God plays dice. Now, I, I want to talk to you about that because it, it's, a, you know, it's a very intriguing quote and it can be pulled out of context and, 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 and cited to mean many different things. But I'd like to ask you what Einstein meant when he talked about God not playing dice. Yes, I think that's really quite clear because quantum mechanics says very simply that you can only calculate probabilities. You can't predict the future in, in detail. And I mean, that, that is basic to quantum mechanics, that, that, that the future is not determined by the past. That in fact, 
things happen, what we say, at random, which means they're unpredictable. And it, it, that's so much built into the modern view of things that it's sort of obvious to us. I mean, everything we do is, is sort of digital these days. We have, when you point a telescope at the sky, you don't just see a star, you actually see a succession of light quanta coming in. Each of the light quanta is a, a little particle which then is detected electronically, and that's how you actually make observations in astronomy. You count the, you actually count the quanta of light coming in as they come, and you count them exactly with, with electronic counters. So it, it's sort of obvious that this is God playing dice. What else could it be? I mean, you can't predict when these particles are coming in. They just come whenever they feel like it. Which, which means how, that they have a kind of, that there's a randomness, even a willfulness? Yes. Okay. That, and everything we see is like that. I mean, that that's, so it, the modern experimental techniques are all based on counting things. That's what digi digital... In instruments do. They just count very, 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 ex very precisely. That's why we like them. But we're always counting these random events. That's what science does. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just to clarify, let's say for someone who's listening, and, and I'm, I'm struggling to understand all of this myself, let's say, so Einstein wanted to believe that behind everything there was an order, that somehow it should be possible to define that and describe it. Um, uh, even if it expressed itself indirectly. And then quantum physicists like Heisenberg or Niels Bohr came along and said that 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 how that, that may be true at the largest level, but that at the smallest level of physics there was uncertainty and randomness. I mean is that right. okay. A absolutely right, yes. All right. Um and so when he so so when he said God does not play dice, he he simply couldn't accept the idea that somewhere behind at some overarching level there weren't rules that 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 governed all of it yes he somehow had this picture of the world as totally causal that that mm -hmm. what he used the word causality a great deal causality meant to him that everything must have a cause that and when you see something happen it must be direct consequence of something that happened before. And that was something that just for him was sort of, uh, it was an article of faith. I mean, there was no mm -hmm. doubt. I mean, so, but I would say he had this religious faith, I would say, in, in the, the, the power of nature. And he saw nature as something causal so that in, in some way it was predetermined from the beginning of time, how it was going to go on. All right. And that just is not the way we see things happening today. Right. I, there's this in exchange of that. It said that Einstein said to Niels Bohr, God does not play dice with the universe. And Bohr responded, who is Einstein to tell the Lord what to do? <laughs> yes. And I think, I mean, <laughs> I'm on the side of Bohr. No okay. <laughs> well, let's talk about the way... Einstein used the word God, and even I mean, he did seem to make frequent references to the Lord, and he had, he had also said that um, that what drove him all his life, what drove him as a scientist, was understanding if God had to make the world this way. Talk to me about how you understand his sensibility and what he was thinking when he 
used terms like God and the Lord. Yes, well, certainly it it it, it was not the kind of personal God that that that, that many people believe in. Right. And he said that very explicitly. Yes. That he did not believe in a personal God who who, who was interested in human affairs. The, the, he did believe in nature and and uh, as a some sort of universal spirit or I suppose you might say world soul you can use whatever f f words you like to describe it some kind of universal mind which ruled the universe and which was just far beyond our comprehension and that's what he called God or the Lord and that is of course he, he was not a practicing Jew but he certainly knew the Jewish literature and that that and the sort of the Lord is, is a phrase that's used in the Bible in the Old Testament right in 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 in, in the same fashion I mean it, 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 it was in, in the Jewish tradition you were not allowed to name God you had to just yes. call him Adonai which means the Lord there's a kind of reverence in, in that use that term is there Yes. I mean, you have written of yourself that you are a practicing Christian but not a believing Christian, and it seems to right. me that Einstein might well have made the same statement about himself as a well, Jew. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't really a practicing Jew in this. In, he, he didn't observe the Sabbath. Right. So, but so, but still, I mean, it was certainly true that he was a sort of a cultural Jew, but 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 not uh, a believing Jew. Mm -hmm. I'm quite intrigued by how he seemed to have developed a real reverence for Judaism, though, also, I guess, later in his life, that he saw it as a moral attitude in life and to life, not a transcendental religion, but he wrote, it is concerned with life as we live it and can up to a point grasp it and nothing else. That It seemed to him to be compatible with his, as you, you know, his faith, as you described it, as a scientist. Oh yes, because he took a very sort of a solemn view of science. Mm -hmm. That I mean, science was to him a, a, a religion. I mean, he he said that quite explicitly. And in, in, of course, in later life, he became much more philosophical than he was as a uh, as a young man. But in, in later life, I mean, he 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 said explicitly that anybody who does not approach science with religious awe. Is not a true scientist, right? Which I think is totally wrong. I mean, the, you do. The, 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 most of my friends are true scientists, but do not approach it with a religious awe. Right. I mean, and certainly not true of me. I, for me, I mean, science is just a bunch of tools. It happens to be a, a bunch of tools that I enjoy playing with, but to me, that's nothing to do with religion. What I what I um, sense in, in your writing about religion is that, um, I mean, when you say that you're a practicing Christian but not a believing Christian, you're, aren't you also saying that you don't, you don't need or even desire to pin down uh, a theology, that you, as a scientist, and I, I mean, I think that, that Einstein was like you in this respect, that you are accustomed to and even thrilled by what you can't yet know or haven't yet discovered. Absolutely. I mean, the world is full of mysteries, and I love mysteries. And, <laughs> and that's, of course, 
the science is full of mysteries. Every time we discover something, we find two more questions to ask. And, and so that there's no end of mysteries in science. That's what it's all about. And, and, uh, and the same is true of religion. So in the, it, it, it's, it's on both sides. Um, you know, you've written a lot recently that that you, that we have learned you that physicists have learned that matter. You use the word weird is weird stuff. <laughs> I mean, what what do you mean when you say that? And what what would that have to do with a, a religious sensibility or or an idea of what you describe as the mind or the soul behind or spirit behind the world? Well, it it, it when I say weird stuff, I simply refer to quantum mechanics. I mean mm-hmm. that's that when you look at individual atoms, they don't behave like little billiard balls. They, they behave in a weird way. They flow like, sometimes flow like liquids and sometimes they, they are in two places at once. And, and I mean, they just don't behave in the way that bigger, big objects behave. So that's what I mean by being weird. They mm-hmm. follow the rules of quantum mechanics, which are quite different from the, the, the sort of common sense view of what things should do. And if, if you take uh, the, the, the particles, I mean, things smaller than atoms, that they can just go out of existence completely and then suddenly reappear. And, and that, that happens all the time. So it is weird, and certainly doesn't correspond to the way things behave in normal life. And and of course they are unpredictable in that they 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 all the time they are making choices. When you have an atom, say a uranium atom, which is unstable, that means that it can disintegrate and and it's radioactive. And your uranium atom has a certain chance that it will disintegrate within the next hour, and. Uh, but there's absolutely no way to tell whether or not it will it will happen. So would that be one of your definitions of a weird behavior? <laughs> yes. Okay. That it just makes up its mind. All right. That I, I use that phrase deliberately. Mm-hmm. It's as if it had a mind of its own. That right. uh, that the atom sits there on the table. And you can observe it, and then at some particular moment you see it's disintegrated. It's become an, an atom of thorium and, and, and an alpha particle, and it's, it's, it's changed its nature quite suddenly. And uh, as far as we know, it is a free choice. The atom has a free choice either to, to disintegrate within that hour or not. It may last for a billion years before it disintegrates. So that element of free choice seems to be absolutely inherent in the world. And so it's my conjecture that that has something to do with the existence of human minds. That, I mean, we have this strong feeling that we have free choice. We can decide to take part in a television interview or we could say no. I could have said no mm-hmm. instead of saying yes. Mm-hmm. That was my choice. and and. Uh, so now I said yes, so I'm stuck with it. But, but uh, <laughs> anyhow, I, I, I think it's reasonable. I don't say it's proved, but I think it's reasonable to imagine there's some connection there, that our minds are in some way a sort of machines for converting the free choices that are made by individual atoms into our purpose. So our, our purpose is, is in some way a, 
a channeling of the free choices made by individual atoms. And, and so you, that seems to be a, okay. a, 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 a reasonable view. And then it's not it's not not accepted by most biologists. Right. <laughs> and then, of course, you can go one stage further and say, well, since mind seems somehow to be built into every atom in some rudimentary way, it's probably also built into the universe as a whole. That uh, that the universe probably does have a mind in some fashion, and that's what Einstein said. And I think I would agree with it. That uh, Einstein said that, but but would he um, would he want to to engage in the discussion that you just uh, this description that you just gave me of of the willfulness of nature of particles? No. All right. For some reason, he, that didn't appeal to him. No, mm-hmm. I'm definitely not. Mm-hmm. But I guess what you're saying is that um, even so, his his largest possible idea of, of mind seems to be compatible with what physics has learned even since his death. Oh, yes. No, it certainly is compatible. And what is not compatible was his belief in, in strict causality. Okay. Right. Right. So for him, that mind would... That mind was there, but would not have allowed free will. But you're saying that there is there is a, a willfulness built into the creation, into the into nature. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether Einstein would have said there's no free will. I don't know whether he expressed himself on that point. But mm-hmm. anyway, I mean, at least it, he 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 didn't believe that uh, the the universe as a whole had free will. Okay. I I wanted to ask you what. What we're what physics physicists are learning now that would befuddle him, what would intrigue him, and I suppose we've already wandered into that territory. Um, what else is happening now that that perhaps he made possible, but that that he might surprise him? Well, I think the big thing that he made possible, but which he never accepted, was black holes, and black holes are exactly what the name implies. They're just places where big stars have collapsed, where the star simply has collapsed into itself and effectively disappeared from the universe, except that there's left behind a hole where the star used to be. So you have there a a, a very strong gravitational field Without any bottom, I mean, it's just it's just is a hole in space-time where a, a star has collapsed in the most complete fashion. Well, that is a consequence of Einstein's theory of relativity, which he never accepted. <laughs> that, to me, is a very strange fact. That this, to, in a way, it's the most exciting, the most beautiful consequence of his theory that things of this sort exist, black holes actually exist. And he didn't believe it. He actually published a paper in his lifetime in 1939 claiming to prove that black holes were impossible. He didn't, he didn't like them. I mean, his proof was wrong, of course. <laughs> but it wasn't just a matter of making a mistake in the, in the algebra. But he had a sort of really violent dislike to the whole idea of a black hole. Hmm. And so he tried very hard to prove that it was wrong. Well, we now know that black holes exist. We actually have absolutely clear evidence that there is one at the, at the, just right in the middle of our own galaxy. We see stars orbiting around it, and we know it's there. And 
we know that, in fact, there are also black holes in many other places around the universe. And in fact, they, they play a fundamental role in the whole development of the universe. So, the, I mean, nature would not be the same without them. And I think if Einstein came back, he really would be surprised by that. I mean, it, mm. it would it would really shake his 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 belief in his his own ideas. And I mean, he would have to accept if he came back now. He would have to accept that black holes are real and they they're here to stay. Okay. And they are actually a tremendous triumph for his own ideas. <laughs> so I think it it would be amusing to see his his reaction. I'm sure he would accept it. Probably he'd make some very suitable joke. Right. <laughs> you 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 wrote um, in in one of your books. You wrote a very concise sentence. You know that black holes are the conceptual laboratories in which we play with the structure of space and time. That was helpful to me because I think it's sometimes hard for just a person on the street to understand what why that might matter. Um, Yes, that the might point be interesting is, to the rest of us. Yes, yeah. I mean, the black hole is the only place where space and time are really so mixed up that they behave in a totally different way. I mean, that you fall into a black hole and your space is converted into time and your time is converted into space. Mm. So it's a much more complete mixing up of space and time than you have anywhere else. That's, so that's why it's a very good sort of thought, <coughs> a, a, a playground for thinking about gravity. Sort of the ultimate relativity? Yes. Uh-huh. And they really do behave the way he predicted. That's the amazing thing. You've also written, you wrote, the old vision which Einstein maintained until the end of his life of an objective world of space and time and matter independent of human thought and observation is no longer ours. Einstein hoped to find a universe possessing what he called objective reality, a universe of mountaintops which he could comprehend by means of a finite set of equations. Nature, it turns out, lives not on the mountaintops but in the valleys. (laughs) Explain to me what you're describing there. Yes, I'm I'm delighted that you remember that piece. It's true. I mean, that, that if you look at the real nature... It's just so much more imaginative than a set of equations. I mean, that what 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 really happens in the universe is that nature finds all these e- extraordinarily complex structures, which have their own rules, which go far beyond this little set of equations that you can write down. So I mean, for 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 example, the whole of biology is an example of that. I mean that hmm. you know, things uh, things happen in living creatures, which you can't just describe with a set of equations. And biology has its own rules, and and they are they that they are much more flexible than the rules of physics. And that's true of most most of science. That's true of, of chemistry, and it's true of Geology or the whole of, of, the, sort of the historical sciences, and so that, that there's this enormous variety of structure and, and uh, uh, historical accident that really defines how the wor- the world actually functions, which is that's what I call the valleys. Mm-hmm where all this sort of interesting stuff is going on. You say it's more like a rainforest than a mountaintop. 
Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm glad you remembered that. Yes, yeah. it's true. That's exactly the metaphor. I mean, that it, 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 complexity is the essence of things on the day-to-day business. And, and so Einstein's universe of sort of cold, hard space and time and, and defined by a set of differential equations... It's there, but it's a very small part of the real universe. It's just, it's just the mountain peaks. And... <laughs> but help me understand this. Um, I mean, I think what's so intriguing is that what, and we don't always think about it this way, but that, that the equations, I mean, the e, e equals mc squared, that, that what Einstein was laying out was, was not something that we were creating but discovering of of equations of facts and rules principles that somehow un- were there and undergird all of this and 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 I, I think that that's th- those equations and rules still somehow undergird this complex reality the rainforest you're describing is that right but but it's just a lot bigger than that yes no the the sort of the, the, these these Equations are quite miraculous in, in a certain way. I mean, the fact that, that nature talks mathematics is somehow <laughs> a miracle. It's sort of a miracle. Natural the mathematics turns out to be the sort of the language that nature uses to describe things, and I, I find it miraculous. I mean, I've spent in my early days calculating very, very precisely how electrons ought to behave. And so I spent weeks and months scribbling equations on paper and finally calculating numbers which said this electron is going to resonate at a certain particular frequency, which I can calculate. It took me six months to calculate. <laughs> well, then somebody went into the laboratory, measured what the electron actually does, and it knew the, the electron knew the answer. The electron somehow knew it had to resonate at that frequency, which I calculated. Hmm. Well, how the electron did? How did the electron know that? It's quite uh, to me that was a, a miracle. I mean, the, nobody could have told the electron before I did the calculation, hmm. but the electron knew anyway. And, and <laughs> right. So that, that that to me is is something we, at a basic level we don't understand. Why is nature mathematical? But there's no doubt it's true. And, of course, that was the basis of Einstein's faith. I mean, he, Einstein talked that mathematical language and found out that nature obeyed his hmm. e- equations too. And of course, his great moment was when they measured the deflection of light by the sun in 1919 and found that it followed his the rules of his theory of gravitation. Was that, that the was expedition? A, the, yes, that yes. was the expedition where Eddington made the observations and confirmed the theory. Mm-hmm. And it did seem Which, miraculous, didn't it, to people that, that he was it, right? It, yes, it, it was miraculous. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, 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 and in a small way, the same thing happened to me. And, and mm-hmm. it, just, it, it is amazing that the electron knows what it has to do. You've written that Newton and Einstein were the supreme unifiers in physics, that, that that's still true even if the unified field theory that Einstein wanted to find didn't, didn't turn out. Tell me what you mean when you say that as a physicist. What, the, what connotations Well, the unifying, it means that you take different natural events, different uh, 
branches of science, things that are described separately by science, and then you find a, a, a single law that covers both of them. I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the classic case of that was Newton, who saw the apple fall from the tree and saw the moon revolving around the earth and found a single law of gravity that explains them both. And, and so, so Newton unified events here on the earth with events in the sky, which before had been considered completely separate. Before, you had physics on the ground and you had astronomy in the sky and no connection between them. And he made the connection. Well, Einstein did more or less the same thing with 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 uh, the the uh, gravitation and uh, electromagnetism he 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 never achieved what he considered to be the final unification but still he had them t tied together very nicely in a single set of equations so he did unify a a a, a, a great part of physics you um, tell a story at the beginning of your autobiographical work about a book you read as a child. Um, and, you know, I, I made a note about this, and I, I don't seem to have gotten up here with it, but I, I think I can recall it, um, that it, it was The Magic... The Magic... The Magic City. The Magic City. By Edith Nesbitt. Yes. I, I actually just looked it up uh, at the library because I was so intrigued by your description. I want to get it for my children. Um and uh, it's been reissued recently. I don't know if you knew that. Oh yes, yes. Um, so you you describe this this these myths of deliverers and destroyers that that recur in every culture and that that have some truth to them. And you say um, that Einstein was the greatest deliverer of your lifetime. And again, I just you know, what do you mean by that? Ex explain that. Yeah, I don't remember what I had in mind at that particular <laughs> moment. But, <laughs> no, I mean, what was certainly true is that Einstein was not just a great scientist, but he was a great humanitarian and a great public figure and a great performer. And he enjoyed being famous, and he always played up to the crowds. And that's why he had such a great influence, that he just he, he didn't live in an ivory tower, although he pretended that he did. But actually, he came out into the world and, and had a big effect. And he was preaching world citizenship. And, the, 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 and, and of course, he was a very st strong, strongly against mil mil militarism. Right. I mean, he, he understood that World War II was an exception, that World War II was a war that had to be fought. But in general, he was against wars altogether, and he was certainly against the kind of militarization that we're seeing today in this country. So he was a great leader of people who believed in the unification of, of humanity, of the of, of, that we all should be citizens of the world, not of individual countries. And so he was a visionary as far as politics was were concerned. And so he made use of his scientific fame to, in order to be politically important, which he was. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so in that, that's what I meant when I said he was a deliverer. There's a, a statement he made before a disarmament conference in 1932. He, he talked about how technology ha had not been used 
um, to make life happy and carefree, as it might have been used. He said, as it is these hard-won achievements, and he means technological advances, in the hands of our generation are like a razor in the hands of a child of three. It's such a yes, stunning well, statement from someone like Einstein, I think. Yes, well, of course, it was 1932, mm-hmm. which was a time when... I mean, I was then, I was eight years old, but I mean, I do remember it, that it was a black time. Everybody was expecting terrible things to happen, and, and rightly. I mean, we, we saw things were going bad. It was the, uh, a tremendous economic depression with millions of people unemployed in, 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 in all countries. The whole economic system was in a mess. It was a time of tremendous pollution. I mean, England was much dirtier then than it is now. Hmm. It was a very, very polluted atmosphere. The rivers were filthy. And above all, we saw Hitler rising in Germany and the prospect of another world war, which we thought would be just worse than the war we'd just survived 15 years before. So, I mean, it was a time, this was in everybody's mind, that somehow in 1932 that things were going just very, very badly altogether. And, of course, science was blamed for that. It mm-hmm. was quite true. World War I was, of course, in everybody's minds at that time. It had been a total disaster for Europe, and, and it, it was essentially a war fought by chemists. It was a, a war fought with, with poison gases. And, and so the image in the public mind of a scientist was somebody inventing horrible poisons to kill people and, mm. and that that's certainly what Einstein had in mind. He'd lived through World War One, just as his, most of his listeners had. I think that history is important also because it does underscore the the um, how unique this role was that he then assumed, as you said, as a deliverer, as a scientist who was also um, a public a public figure. Right. Right. And that's what made him very unpopular with the FBI. <laughs> Um, what do you think Einstein would think of the Internet? Well, the, that's, of course, hard to say. It, it, but I, 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 think it, it, I think he would probably have recognized, though with some reservations, that it was a force for freedom in the world and that it actually, on balance, was an enormous benefit. I think it is an I mean, I happen to believe that, that, that the, the Internet is an example of something that technology has given us which really has made the world a lot better and it it it, it tie, ties the world together in an amazing fashion mm-hmm. so now you you just don't feel the differences between different countries uh, so much yes. anymore and i th- i think that's going to be a profound change and you can see of course it had enormous effects in russia it had enormous effects in china that it 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 strengthens the individual against the government in all sorts of ways. The government can fight against it as the Chinese government is trying to keep the Internet under control. But it's not working, and and I don't see how it can work in the end. It didn't work in the Soviet Union. I suppose if you think about relativity as a general concept, I mean, the Internet has changed our sense of ourselves in proximity to others in an astonishing way, just our feeling about that, as you said. Yes. I mean, Einstein, of course, would hate to have the word relativity used in that way. (laughs) Okay. I mean, he always was saying it was all nonsense that 
relativity is uh, uh, something mathematical. It has nothing to do with politics and it has nothing to do with psychology. Okay. But nevertheless, I mean, it's, it has passed into the language and he couldn't help that. Mm-hmm. I think um, I'd like to ask you in, in closing, I mean, how do you... Um, all right, you, you also... You you cite a letter, and Einstein was such a remarkable writer of letters that um, that he wrote to the family of Michel Besso, who who was his great lifelong friend. Did I say his name correctly? Is that how? Yes. Okay. Well, Michele, I think. Michele. But I don't know how you pronounce All right. it. Yes. And um, and I believe I believe that that Besso was the person he was just walking with, wasn't he? When he was when he had this sort of eureka moment, when suddenly it all came together in his mind. Um, the special theory, special, or would it have been the special or general relativity? Special, yes. Yes. So he wrote a letter, and and his friend preceded him in death just by a few weeks, and uh, and you you cited a letter that he wrote, and in which, I mean, he's really it's not a religious reflection in any formal way, but he's reflecting on the fact that because of what he knows about the universe, he just he. Past, present, and future don't are are not not at all flat and contained. Uh, even when he's thinking about a death, I, I just wanted to ask you, as you you lived with these ideas um, oh, yes. all your life and worked in them. I mean, how do they do? You, how do you think you perhaps experience reality differently, or some of these large human questions about? mortality and past, present, and future because of this science that you're steeped in and that Einstein also was your predecessor in? Yes, I think it does make a difference. I mean, we, we look at past and the future as being, what Einstein said, a stubbornly persistent illusion. That's <laughs> how he described <laughs> the difference between past and future. And that's why, I mean, it didn't make any real difference whether you die this year or you die next year, that it, 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 in, in the end, the, the past and the future are all the same. And when you happen to die isn't such a big deal. I think that's true. And, and I was thinking of that very much just last week. My, my close friend and colleague, John Bacall, who was a great astronomer, died a, f- a couple of months ago, and we had his memorial last week. And that was very, very clear in his case, that uh, he was joking and working right up to the end of his life. He knew he was dying, but he was always cheerful right up to the end. And he said, after all, it's not such a big deal. I've done what I wanted to do. I had a great life. It doesn't make all that much difference whether I die now or in 10 years. And he said that to his wife and children, and and it's true. I mean, that his wife and his children are, are wonderfully supportive but they had this happy feeling about him, which is, which we'll never lose. But does it does it have any implications for what religious people might think of as the afterlife or life beyond death? In some sense, no, it has nothing to do with that. Okay, no, it, I mean, it doesn't suggest that somehow in some other dimension he still exists. Or no, he, I I I just don't know what his private beliefs were. I never right. talked with him about that. But right. I know he he once said. To me, religion is a childhood disease from which one has recovered. Mm-hmm. So I think he was not, he was definitely not a religious person. Mm-hmm. No, I, but what he meant was, what Einstein meant when he wrote that letter to Bessel's widow is mm-hmm. that 
that, uh, no, he did not believe in an afterlife, but simply that uh, our existence is something permanent in the sense that the whole universe is permanent, that it is, uh, in, 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 the, in the eyes of the universe, everything happens more or less simultaneously, no matter when it was. Hmm. It, the whole thing is just uh, one piece, and you don't make a separation between what happened now and what happened later. Hmm. I find that um, kind of piecing together his religious sensibility, if we want to call it that, and, and also reading into yours, it's... In fact, the world has moved closer to this way of thinking, even non-scientists, of having a more generous, expansive um, view of how things might work, the forces behind it. No, I, I believe that's true. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, the uh, quantum mechanics particularly, I think, is, is a, a, a tremendous liberation. I mean, it, the fact that Nature has this freedom built into it. I think uh, it's something everybody is in some way aware of. That, and and I think that helps. I mean, we don't right. uh, somehow the old uh, idea of predestination, the, the the Calvinist idea. I mean, maybe quite a number of people still believe that, but the the certainly the multitudes of people do not. And, and predestination has definitely gone out of fashion. And I think quantum mechanics really did help. I mean, even to me, the idea of a personal God, I mean, it seems to me that when Einstein describes and when you, you know, what he was reacting against, it's very, it's kind of very simplistic, bad theology. I mean, even theology about a personal God has moved beyond some kind of figure that that simply judges, (laughs) right? Yes, of course. I mean, there are still fundamentalists and people who take a very narrow view of things, and, and, and that's true of other religions besides Christianity. But on, ba- on, on I think on balance, it, it's going the other way. Mm-hmm. I guess, um, I, I think we're just about done. I, I want to ask you um, if there's anything I haven't asked you about, about Einstein, or something that you'd like to talk about or a favorite quote or a story um, something that I've missed I mean I've missed a lot obviously we can't we, we haven't wrapped this up but I think um, this has been a, a wonderful conversation And but is there something you'd like to go into when you think about Einstein well I think the, 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 what, what I would like to, to, to say just to, uh, the last few seconds he had a marvelous sense of humor and that <laughs> I mean that's a great uh, very important part of life and of course the the, 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 the the fact is that scientists have on the whole cultivated a sense of humor because so much of science is a history of failures I mean most if you're a creative person it's true of, in other kinds of creative life but more I mean in science that so much of science tends up ends up to be wrong and and that you do something you spend weeks and months and finally the whole thing collapses well you need to have a sense of humor that's that, that otherwise you you couldn't survive and, and continue and and so jokes in, in are an important part of science and Einstein I think understood that particularly well right he kind of epitomized that didn't he 
Yes. 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 He, he's he's very fun to read. I've been describing that to my colleagues these recent weeks as I've been reading him. I'm laughing out loud, and my children, you know, when I say I'm reading Albert Einstein, they <laughs> they're kind of puzzled because you're right. It's not a, an idea that has come down to us necessarily about him or about scientists in general. It's interesting, isn't it? Right. And 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 but uh, of course Feynman was the great exponent of of being a clown as well as a scientist. Right. And, but Einstein had it too, and, and he didn't, wasn't quite as flamboyant as Feynman, but it was something of the same kind. Mm-hmm. I did want to, I think, think we're done now. I, I, you, um, you, you describe a journey that you took with Feynman and driving through Oklahoma. Do you remember that? Oh, in yes. your book. And uh, I come from Shawnee, Oklahoma, uh, which oh, I don't reveal to everyone, but I was just amazed that in your autobiography I found my hometown mentioned. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have happy memories of Shawnee. Yes. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for doing this. Um, and we're going, you know, I'm going to be interviewing a number of people, and I, I hope we'll come up with something that can do justice to this very large and important subject. And we will let you know wh- what we're doing with the program. Good. Well, thank you very much, and thank thanks you. for your good questions. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>